I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time and I'm delighted to say my guest today is Samira Ahmed. Samira, which book did you choose? I chose Ballet Shoes by Noel Streckfield. Did you go straight to that book? Was it an instant decision? Yeah, pretty much. Um... I think it's a book that I probably reread so often from the age of about 10. I think that's when I discovered it. And I think about it a lot. It's it's had a huge influence on me and on my view of the world of work, on the view of the world of um, women's friendship um, and on London, because they were always travelling on the tube to the theatre to work. And I think um, it just just shaped quite a kind of glamorous idea of the world I might grow up into. How did you come by your copy? Did somebody give it to you? I'm not sure if I was given it as a present at a birthday party or whether it was one of those books that was in the junior school library that I saw and I just went out and bought my own copy. But it was a book that people talked about. I just had this idea it was a book that, um, you know, was a classic. Did it make you want to dance? Did you want your own ballet shoes? No, no. I mean, I was fascinated by the glamour of Hollywood. And my mother is an actress, so, you know, it was it was quite interesting. But I was more just interested in the world of London theatre, the London of um, tube trains and, and, and the London in which you could remake yourself. You know, all these mysterious refugees and artists who were passing through. So I think that's what really gripped me. And, that's, and I'm sure it's a book that helped me fall in love with London and made me know that I wanted to live in central London one day. It wasn't enough to be in the suburbs. Three little girls, Paulina, Petrova and Posey, have been adopted severally by a great uncle, Matthew, known as Gum, who sort of acquires them in various different ways. Sylvia, his great niece, looks after them and and there's a big enough household to have several members of staff. And part of the whole money imperative right through the book is keeping that standard going so that it never seems to occur to them to economise on staff or to send the children to a state school. I mean, I'm being super realistic here, obviously, because that's this is not the story. But the whole drive of the book is keeping this family together in the circumstances in which they live. But they have a real fight to do it. I mean, they're constantly needing clothes and they have no money for the clothes. And every single person in the household has to kind of get to and scrimp and save and make do and mend. So it's as you say, it's an extraordinarily 
work imperative all the way through the book. Well, they hardly ever have a moment to themselves. No, and I think to be fair, I mean, one thing is it's, it's the moment in time. So Sylvia is presumably of that generation who lost their loved ones or lost that generation of men in the First World War trenches, you know, because this is the early 30s, isn't it? And she's, yeah. she's you know, you get the sense she's in her 30s now, isn't she? Um, yes. But I imagine the house which, you know, her uncle owns, owns he owns it outright. So... There's no cost to staying in the house per se, but the maintenance of it is everything. But I guess the idea of of selling and giving away the one thing they know they don't have to pay for, which is the house. Um, but I do sympathise um, with yeah. Sylvia and, and and the servants. Again, they're all single women. You know, it's a house full of single women who who yes. have, they're all odds and ends of families. You know, they're not really related to each other, are they? I mean, the relationship between um, Sylvia and her, her great uncle is quite a distant one. Um, and I think it's interesting because again, we see everything through a sort of supposedly post-colonial, to use that dreaded word, lens. But you know, he goes off to all these exotic places and comes back with these children. I mean, the joke about them being called fossils is because they're like collected objects. And the, the the lodgers they take in. I mean, don't forget they take in lodgers to make ends meet. And the Simpsons have come back from Malaya, which, you know, is, is really dodgy um empire. I mean, if you go on and read about the Malaya uprising, you know, all that's to come. So um I, I find it fascinating that in this book you get this glimpse of the twilight of the British Empire and its figures who are some of whom are starting to come back. And of course, the mysterious lesbian couple, um, the two doctors, <laughs> the doctors yes. who are professors yes. <laughs> of literature and teach the girls. Because again, it's never made explicit. And yet it seems so obvious that that their friendship might well be a, a love affair. And I love yes. that again, that this is a book that didn't um, hide things and yet didn't need to be explicit either. You could see it if you wanted to. And if you didn't want to, you didn't have to. It was a, a great friendship. And all, all those lodgers absolutely shaped the girls' lives because obviously one of them is, is a dance teacher and that's how they end up at the academy. I just yeah. realised um, Mahatma Gandhi lodged in um, somewhere around the Cromwell Road. In the, uh, I mean, earlier, not then, I suppose mm, it would have been oh, in the that. 1910s. The way he talked about his landlady and stuff, there was something of the world of ballet shoes of, you know, these people from other places coming through London and West London was where they would end up. It was a place of migrants. It's a book that hasn't dated in so many ways because it's about refugee children you know, children who essentially looked after children, about blended families, um, about London as this melting pot where you can reinvent yourself and the idea of of hardship and how you have to make ends meet any way you can. Um, but there, I just remember at the very beginning when they talked about the house they lived in and it was at the sort of shabby end of the Cromwell Road and and it was really far away from the sort of obviously interesting part of London, but not too far to be taken to see the doll's houses in the V&A every rainy day. Well, it was set in the 30s. It was a world that somehow was still there. So it was like reaching back through history to touch these girls and the sense that the London that they lived in was the London that still existed. And the idea that they might, in a weird way, their generation was still alive in the 70s. You know, they'd be old, older women. Where were you living then? Oh, I was in the suburbs. So I went to school in Wimbledon and I grew up near Wimbledon in Kingston-upon-Thames. And 
was it was a boring suburb. And although I've ended up back here, my whole idea of where I want to live has always been about London and the city. And I did. I spent, you know, about 10 years of my life living in central London. I actually lived above Baker Street Tube Station. How cool is that? That is very cool. And so again, I'm sure I'm sure that um, the fossil girls had a huge impact on me because the idea of just getting on the tube to go to work to, you know, and the world would come to London. And, you know, you might meet a film producer and your career might take you off to another country. So I've lived and worked in Hollywood and um, I've lived and worked in Berlin. So, you know, as I say, I, the book the book has, without intending to, just gave me this idea of what women could do on their own without men around. <laughs> and, and when you had this copy, when you were 10, where, where did you take it to read? What was your favourite spot? Um, I read a lot in my bedroom. And at that age, I think I had my own bedroom by then. My sister had, had moved out into her own room. Um, and I just sit on the bed a lot or with my back against the radiator, you know, by the underneath the window. And a couple of years later, I would get into newspapers and I would have a huge pile of The Guardian. That, that was my pre-internet library research fund. Um, and it was like, it got to be kind of waist high. But, um, but otherwise, it just, that's right. I'd sit with my back against the radiator um, with the book. And um, if I was lucky... A buttered currant bun and a hot chocolate. If I, if you asked me what I wanted to do with my time and I wasn't at school, I was reading. And was it encouraged at home? Was it absolutely understood that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, you didn't need to be encouraged. That's just who I was. My mother always used to say, and there's, she's got the photographic evidence. Every family gathering, I'm sitting in a corner with a book. So, but the, the, the great thing was, my dad wasn't a reader, and he still says now he, he can't concentrate on books. He he reads newspapers, but he always loved that I read. And because he worked in wholesale, he he did restaurant catering supplies and things. They don't ask me how, but he he um, came home one day with a sack full of paperback. Puffin books. And I think it's because you also had um, a stake in a little shop and they used to sell newspapers and things, but they also sold books for a while. And so he brought home this sack of all the, the puffins um, wholesale. And so just take the ones you want. So all the ones that I have, you know, like Treasure Island and stuff, they're all from there. Isn't that lovely? That is. I, I feel waves of envy from my 10 year old self. So that would have been absolute heaven. It always was, wasn't it, reading something that somebody hadn't made you read? You know, obviously that, that has to happen at school, but something about choosing is just so special when you're little because you can choose so little else. So the world you get into through a book. Yeah, and I had lots of shelves, you know, from a young age. I mean, I have to say a lot of what I read was Enid Blyton and I reread Enid Blyton a lot. But around 10, it's when I started to get into the school library and I started to read things like Alan Garner and Noel Stretfield. And I'm trying to think, oh, Inez Bit. I loved all her the Samiad books, you know, that, that world of Edwardian fantasy was quite interesting. It was often a very ethical world and not the, the C.S. Lewis books, you know, the Narnia books as well. Because weirdly enough, um, Noel Stretfield wrote a, a biography of Eve Esbitt later. She was obviously fascinated oh, by her too. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you go back to the book now, though, and your, your copy has it, have you still got it, the one with the... Well, yeah. I have a house full of books and I can't find it. I know it's in the house. And I can even see it and I can see the spine. I've been looking for it, believe me. No, I'm, I'm comforted by that, actually, because I too have a house full of Which books. one have you got? I've got the one which has got, well, the illustration on the front is not the same as the illustrations inside because the illustrations inside are by her sister, Ruth Jervis. And they're lovely sort of little pen and ink pictures. Yes, they, I think um, those are the same I ones. would say they're quite Millie Molly Mandy-ish inside. Yes. Um, they're quite specific about the bobbed hair. But actually, this one is nice and 
soft too. It's very pre-loved and it's very, very portable. Something wonderful about a book which has already been bent to shape, isn't there? Yeah, I just used to get lost in that world of those girls. And I remember there was a BBC adaptation about seven or eight years ago. And it was done as I think a, so, yeah. And in the book, there's the two lodgers who have come from Malaya. The Simpsons, yeah. Yeah, Simpsons. They made him single, like a widower, so that he could fall in love with Garney. Isn't that terrible? Like, you know. Actually, you, that is terrible. <laughs> that really is terrible. That is extraordinary. Because the one thing that really struck me reading it again now and not actually having touched it since I was about 10, the constant repetition all the way through on money. Yeah, I, d- I, I don't remember that. that as a takeaway at all. To me, it was all about the Oh, shoe. I do, you see. Do you? I really remember that. I, I remember when they first get their first you know, commercial engagement in theatre and, you know, it's exact what the rates are and, you know, Pauline's going to get more <laughs> and Petrova's going to get less and it's worked out sort of, you know, it's so many shillings and and pence, pounds, shillings and pence. And yeah, you know, again, I just think about over my life, you know, negotiations about money and salary. Then it all goes back to, you know, it's 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 you're, you're getting paid to do a job. And even if it's something that you love. And, you know, I think part of what's weird about these girls is Posey's the natural dancer. Yeah, the littlest one. And Pauline, it turns out, has talent, um, although she's more of an actor. And, but she's quite ambivalent about it. And, you know, she's she feels quite ambivalent about the fact that because she happens to be beautiful, people treat her differently, especially when she gets approached by Hollywood. And Petrova is miserable because she isn't talented, but she's going to have to dance and <laughs> act because that's the, it's kind of become the family business. So all three of the girls have a very different approach. And it shows you that even the world of, you know, the supposedly glamorous world of theatre and performance can actually be quite a mundane or a difficult world if it's not what you want to do. But it's a trade. Absolutely. Um, I think it's very, it's brilliant. It just shows girls this idea of the world of work is complicated. We three fossils vow to try and put our name into history books because it's our very own and nobody can say it's because of our grandfathers. And we vow to try and earn money for Ghani until gum comes home. Amen. Petrova and Posey both made faces at her, but they raised their right arms and said, we vow. Then Petrova burst out, Why did you say amen? If you say it, we've got to too, like in church, and then it spoils the we vow. I don't know why I said it. Pauline looked puzzled. It sort of came. We do need money so much, it seemed like a prayer, almost. Reading a book through an adult prism. My whole thing was, oh my goodness, you know, these poor little kids, when they get to a certain age, they're going to go, Where, who were my parents? What shipwreck? You know, obviously, I'm really happy I read it as a child, so I didn't have all that. But the other theme through it, which I have to say I was not aware of as a child either, is the insistence on how people look. The minute that Petrova, who's the, the middle one, is brought into the house, the nanny, who is a wonderful character, you know, the very practical, loving nanny who's been in the house and looked after generations of them, says, well, I hope this one has a good head on her shoulders because she's obviously Miss Plain. She's looking at an infant. And all the way through, there are, everybody is described minutely. And further on, there's, there's a little girl called Winifred who they encounter at auditions, who is, her family are really on their uppers. And actually, it matters greatly to her whether she gets a job or not. But she knows that she will lose out to Pauline, who is beautiful, because of her looks. But there isn't isn't a kind of um, 
judgment on that. It just seems to be this is how the world works. She's a pretty girl. She'll be fine. Except that I do think Pauline is aware of it and actually does feel ambivalent about that, you know, that she knows it's undeserved. And of course, when she throws her ego around and does become conceited, there is a a punishment because she gets dropped in favour of Winifred and her family tell her, well, you know, it's quite right too. That's the closest the book gets to an overt sort of moralistic lesson. But there is one in there. I remember that really clearly when I was little, that her comeuppance, because she just gets very kind of grand in her dressing room and, and won't pick things up or go and fetch stuff. I, I think I, I identified more strongly with Pauline than the others, to be perfectly honest. Did you, did you have a favourite? Posey's the one that I don't, I didn't particularly like. But it was also partly the mystery of great talent. She's the daughter of a ballerina. So she kind of arrives a bit like Harry Potter with this great mythology already around her as a, as a baby. And she turns out to be exactly that, you know, this kind of instinctive creature who lives for dancing and has very powerful emotions. And, you know, the same can't be expected of her as it is of everyone no, else. No, absolutely. That's, that's, that's giving up to the creative spirit, isn't it, completely from all of them. Isn't she, is she the one with the surviving parent too? I think she is, Percy although it's never brought into the story. I think she was given to gum by her mother. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In some ways, I did identify with Pauline just because I think she she almost has, she has a distance. She's like, she's watching herself in this, even though she's the most privileged. And part of it is a wish fulfillment of, oh God, if only I could be like Pauline the Beautiful One who gets, you know, selected by Hollywood. But Petrova is the one that I think my heart was with, who you know, of course, really is into engines and wants to fly. And of course, at the end, she's the one who has the great wish fulfillment when Gum takes her off and says, well, let's get you flying lessons at the aerodrome. And, you know, she's she's going to be Amelia Earhart kind yes. of thing. And there's that whole sense of she's from the Russian Revolution, isn't yes. she? Yes. You know, or, or her family have been, you know, sort of been through the Russian Revolution. And so they're fleeing, I don't know, is it quite Stalin's Russia by now? But, you know, you have the real sense of this part of West London is full of Russian emigres. And, you know, you just realise how, how how much of that yes. was coming through London. You know, we have this very false idea that London only became multicultural in the 1950s. And I think Bally Shoes is a perfect illustration of how it's always been this exciting melting pot, you know, riches and poverty next to each other. And the other thing, I mean, I go to the theatre a lot, partly for work because I present front row, but also I love it. The glamour of the world of theatre, of the putting on the makeup and the costume yeah. and the rehearsals. You know, it was actually seeing backstage was actually glamorous true, in itself. One bit, I remember when, when they say something like, you know, this is your 15 minute call and they all look at each other in horror and go, what does that mean? <laughs> and they mystery the director and yes. you know, the people out front who are auditioning you because they always remain these mysterious figures, um, which is how it must feel, you know. And you get a sense of just how many, you know, plays there were, which didn't need a big star Hollywood name, the way that now, you know, you need to have a celebrity name to lead the cast. There'd be that big Christmas production of Alice in Wonderland or Midsummer Night's Dream and the girls kind of all, you know, play the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was like, there was just this volume of work for ordinary actors who did not have to be celebrities. And I think a lot of older actors are still quite nostalgic for that. Well, world. actually, that's that's the thing, you know, wanting to be an actress myself. That's the thing that it all seemed so possible. And the fact that it's described in such minute detail down to how you get a license and how old you need to be and whether you'll earn a bit more and all the audition process. Absolutely accurate. Absolutely 100% accurate. And that, again, made it seem reachable to me. I love the makeup, the details about what pounds yes. it 
make up numbers and you know they all know their numbers off by heart <laughs> and then the cultural adjustment of when Pauline was sent to the film studio and how alien it seems and suddenly she's not in control of the process and what's demanded of you is very different and although I mean I, I've I've you know I've never uh, been a, a professional actor I read the stage every week and it's always interesting that whole difference between being on stage and doing screen work which you know you'll know and how little in a way you have to do Rather, it all has to be incredibly small yes, yes. Uh, and specific on screen. And actually on stage, sometimes things have to be bigger. And I think, again, the, the book gives incredible insight into craft, I think. Well, of course, she was, Adele Stratfield was an actress, you know, for 10 years. And yeah. she, from the sounds of it, was very realistic about her talent and where it might go. And after her father died, was it was suggested that, <laughs> I don't know why they thought this was a good idea, but writing might be a safer option for her. You know, so that the, there are, throwaway paragraphs which tell you so much but the oh, fact that Noel Stretfield was an actress and absolutely understood the the unfairness of it really makes it all the more poignant because there's a sequel isn't there is the painted garden about Pauline in Hollywood it's not or is quite, that a completely different set of characters yes it's not quite a sequel what, what she did was she answered a lot I mean, I'm sure the poem was inundated she answered a lot of fan letters from little girls and I think it was 100% little girls who wanted to know what happened to them next and her thing was always, you know, well, Pauline is obviously a big Hollywood star. And actually, there's a fantastically line when, but I think it's Nana who says to um, one of the little girls, well, you know, film stars are nice things to be, but they aren't important. And then she she actually, um, she wanted to give a fair voice, I think, to that thing of the, the stage matters. And she says things like, you know, an actress goes on learning. Even when you're old, they go on learning. So I think she had a fantastically realistic idea. <gasps> Of, of what her career is. I mean, given that she updated the stories in very small essay form, but given that she rather fabulously didn't didn't want to write in the first place, was very dismissive of the fact she'd found it really easy to write. She said, you know, it came to me too easily and then its success absolutely bamboozled her. And then every book she wrote afterwards seemed to, you know, have shoes in the title. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities maladies, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The house is actually sold, which is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking at the time because it's so associated with them and their happiness and their security. So the fact that she was bold enough to put that in as a plot point is is pretty striking. See, again, I think there's something very revelatory about the whole way that you know the English middle classes behaved. I mean, you think about the whole phenomenon of you know all the families that were in the empire who would be sending their kids back home as such to boarding school. Some of them had terrible, terrible experiences. And I, I think, you know, this book just shows you there's an unsentimentality about the way the middle class has behaved, which was it's about you need to be solvent. And, you know, if work is taking you to different places, well, then you sell the house and you move, whether it's to India and Hong Kong or it's to Hollywood. For So, I, you know, I, I think that's what's interesting. We, we don't we've changed our views about emotion, haven't we? And yes. um, why would you break up the family, we think now? But that's not how they thought again, which is why I think that book is so interesting to me, because it's quite unsentimental. Um, what happens to Sylvia at the end? Yeah, I was trying to remember, because Nana goes to Czechoslovakia, <laughs> poor woman, and in one of these, replies to one of the children, and Noel Stratfield says, you know, I don't think she was very happy there, because she couldn't speak any of the language. But Sylvia accompanies, sort of chaperones, I guess, chaperones Pauline to Hollywood, to her, to her big adventure. <laughs> The span of the book is not that long, but by the end of it, um, Sylvia has got grey hairs. Yeah, I know. And she's not I know, so, an old, older woman. <laughs> she's just Yeah, not. so I, I find her the most intriguing because she's very intelligent. You get the sense she's quite educated as well. I don't know if she has a university degree. And there is a real heartbreak. She's of that generation who's never, you know, going to marry. And that's why I do think that TV adaptation that gave her a romance was just so wrong. Um and that sense of her having to put other people first. So going off with Pauline to Hollywood, in a way, is just awful. But on the other hand, you think, you never know. It's Hollywood. <laughs> who knows who she might meet out there? She might have a thrilling um, romance, you know, with somebody. Um, or become a screenwriter herself or something. But uh, probably not. Um, <laughs> but um, but Petrova and, the, 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 you know, and Gum go off to live near an aerodrome, don't they? Yes, they um, do. So he enables her dreams. Uh, so the girls are all enabled in different ways. They are. The other thing I absolutely loved, um, especially reading it again, was all the detail about what they're wearing. It's just continual. Yeah. It's joyful. The layers of tulle and yes. the organza frocks there and the party much, frocks. There is much mention of knickers. Knickers is a frequent word in this. But there's also that the, the, the how old you were dictated how you dressed. So by the time Pauline, who never has to inherit anything, obviously being the eldest, but when she's approaching 15 and she's by then attending her own premiere and she's taken off to Harrods to choose something and, and her by then agent, because that happens very quickly and wonderfully too, says, you know, she needs to, she needs to look young, but not too young. She needs to look her age, which again, reading it, you might, I must have thought, yes, of course, because she's not required to be adult. And the agency that the children have, despite the fact that they are very tither and yon, their time is really not their own. But every adult, until the moment they're important, is kind of subservient. It's a brilliant child's eye view of the world. How you can, well, how you can relegate your of, adults, can't you? Yeah, well, I interviewed um, Hayley Mills just the other weekend and I'd, we screened 
Whistle Down the Wind, and she's written a lovely memoir about her first 21 years. And it's interesting because I guess I read it without thinking through the prism of ballet shoes. Because, you know, when she was making, you know, some of those films, I mean, she was 15 when she made Whistle Down the Wind. So, and, and she actually describes coming down to dinner one night during the shoot, they were staying at this lovely hotel in the country, in a, in a nice frock, like a, you know, grown up frock, and suddenly feeling like a woman and being very pleased with herself. And then the next day, she's back on set where, um, they wanted her to be very childlike, so she had she had costume where the sleeves were all a bit short and the coat was a bit short, so she didn't look too old. And I know I think fifteen was a lot younger than it is now, but yes. I'm fascinated by that. I think there's something very Haley Mills of Pauline's experience actually yes. of being this young woman who's suddenly in the spotlight in a breakout role because that was Haley Mills's experience, wasn't it, when she first totally. made Tiger Bay? So some of those things stay true, don't they? And I think it still happens today. If you think about, is it Millie Bobby Brown, you know, the young star of Stranger Things? She was about 12, I think, when um, she first starred in that first series. And it's a really, you know, interesting age when she's not a woman, but she's going to head off into that world. Yes. You know, there's something about being that age as well. 12 for a, a girl is this fascinating moment of adolescence before before all the pressures of adulthood. It's not also about... The, the book is entirely within the framework of childhood. So although Pauline's just pushing at the edges of it, you know, there is no romance or anything like that. And I think that's also one of the reasons that book is so powerful and adults still have fun memories of it because, you know, we're always encouraged to stay in touch with our inner child. But our inner child is the person who I always, I, I love looking at like nine-year-old girls on the street because, you know, give me the confidence of a nine-year-old girl. You know, they are full of ideas and full of energy. And I think, Ballet Shoes captures these girls starting to achieve in careers, but they're all in touch with their inner child because they are actually still children. And I think that's what adults take on into their adult life in that book. That's what I take from it. You know, they're very unsentimental about themselves, like children are. They're very practical. And this is all they've ever known. So they don't, you know, I think they occasionally whine about, oh God, you know, having to work quite as much as they do because they're doing schoolwork and then going out to the theatre. They never stop. just be exhausted. <laughs> really? They, they never, never stop. <laughs> but... Um, but again, you know, I just think there's a huge admiration for seeing children achieve. And of course, you know, you know we're reading about, you know, the Victorian child's labour. This is very different. You know, you've got labour laws now limiting the number of hours that they could be out there. But but still the idea of children kind of working like adults. It's it's quite it's quite unsettling almost out there in the world, you know, having economic earning power, you know, being important in a certain way. Um, and and having these negotiations, even if adults have to do them with you. And thank God, you know, you don't get a sense that they've been terribly badly managed, although there's a sense probably that they didn't get paid quite as much as they might have. Um, there's one mention, I mean, it's really, it's obviously, it's not from the children particularly, but it, it, there's a mention of the fact that if, if one studio had known that she was going to be offered work in the UK, they would have upped her fee. So, they, they you know... The, that's Noel Streckfield, isn't it? That's really... Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, the, the children are... They there. are pinpoint minutiae with where every single you know, pound, shilling and pence goes. And in the end, Pauline has to make the big sacrifice of actually taking a Hollywood role so that Posey can go to Czechoslovakia. Otherwise, she couldn't have afforded it, which is, which is an extraordinary compromise. And they also have a wonderfully naive view of, of famous. They, they want to make their name famous which, again, as a child, it comes with no attendant responsibility. It's just they want to be the famous fossils and, and united under that banner, and they vow it to them, to each other, don't they, every so often? Well, isn't there something lovely about that? I mean, it's sort of, you know, again, if you think about the 30s as a time when actually socialist ideas are quite, you know, 
strong in British politics. Um, and the idea of not coming from a, a fancy name, but creating your own name and making your own dynasty. I mean, maybe you know, this is the this is the theatre world of Noel Coward, who is a lower middle class boy from in South London, isn't he? He is, yeah. It's um, not yeah. Croydon, but it's somewhere like that. That I think he was he was born, and I think that's part of what that book also has that appeals to children um, like me, who you know, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I grew up with Indian parents, but I, I definitely identified with these girls who had a British identity, but had a, an ethnicity that was you know, mysterious and complicated. Definitely. They did have to speak proper though, didn't they? And there's one scene where um, they're auditioning for something and a little boy has to say, hail, Peter has to say hail and he can't, he says Heil instead. And these two chaps discussing him saying, it's actually a very, very smart boy, you know, and if he spoke properly, um, we could allow him to understudy. Because his accent wasn't right. But that's so realistic and that still goes on. There's so much prejudice yeah. still about accents, you know, even if they pretend there isn't. You know, it's easier to be posh and act working class than to be a genuinely working class actor and given a fair crack at all these other kind of period parts. So, again, I just think it's realistic. The one thing that she doesn't really deal with, but I take away as an adult reader, and just think, oh, is the irresponsibility of gum, this... You know, yes. this man who just, I mean, I think even as a child, you just think, what the hell? Yes. Where are you going? How much money are you spending on tickets and leaving your, you know, your your niece and all these girls potentially in penury? Because from time to time, initially he sends a bit of money back. And and also he has by then lost a leg and that doesn't stop him gadding about the place. Um, sending money back and then it just stops. No mention of him. And when he does come back... One of his first lines is something like, you know, I, I give house room to all these women and there's never anyone to help me when I need it because, I don't know, he has to put his own coat on the hook or something. I mean, it's just, he is an extraordinary character. But it feels pointed, doesn't it? That it he does. is so, I mean, he's entirely absent. Yes. Um, and he keeps bringing, I mean, you know, there's stuff every time he brings back another baby and the staff talk about how many more of these are you going to bring? You know, so it, it is dealt with um, and they just get on with it. But I don't know what to make of him and where he went. He's probably doing some really dodgy deals for Anglo-Iranian oil, wasn't he? Probably was, yeah, a suitcase full of fossils as cover. You know, like you know, like you can do, um, you, there's a whole reading of Jane Austen where you see all the anti-slavery stuff in it. I think Ballet Shoes is completely ripe for, as I say, it's the twilight of the empire and you can just see all the locations that are referenced in it. I just think the Malaya that the Simpsons come from, Czechoslovakia, which is, God, if it's 36, 37, this book is written, we know what's coming in 38. Absolutely. Um, it's it's quite terrifying, actually, <laughs> in some ways. Oh, um, Samira, thank you so much. I have absolutely loved rereading the book. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Samira Ahmed. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TwiceUponAPod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.